President Biden has been in touch with George Floyd's family and has keenly followed Derek Chauvin's trial. For example, according to the New York Times, Mr. Biden canceled a planned speech about his all-important infrastructure agenda so that he could watch the Chauvin trial verdict announcement instead. Did you know that this isn't how U.S. presidents have traditionally handled racially charged criminal trials? For example, another U.S. president some 70 years ago did not even reply to a letter from an African-American mother, a letter in which she asked for his help to bring justice for the death of her teenage son, whose body had been mutilated beyond recognition and whose murder had gripped the nation's headlines. Hey there, news peelers. Today is April 30, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. And oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of these stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. Last week on April 20th. The jury reached its verdict in the murder trial of the former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Mr. Chauvin was found guilty of all charges in the death of George Floyd, which happened on May 25, 2020, less than a year before the jury's verdict. President Biden praised the verdict as a potential giant step forward in the march toward justice in America. The overwhelming majority of Americans breathed a sigh of relief because, no doubt, the verdict was just the right outcome. But we were also relieved because we correctly anticipated that a guilty verdict would not lead to renewed violent protests, riots, and looting. What we had not anticipated is what happened earlier that day, before the verdict was announced. President Biden shared some of the details of his phone call with Mr. Floyd's family. He emphasized that to call the Floyd family, quote, "I waited till the jury is sequestered." He also said, quote, "I'm praying the verdict is the right verdict, which I think it's overwhelming in my view." Then he raised his hand and re-emphasized that, quote, "I wouldn't say that unless the jury was sequestered now." Not hearing me say that, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas criticized President Biden's comments because, in his view, by speaking about the trial prior to the verdict's announcement, President Biden had quote foolishly provided grounds for a mistrial or a possible basis on appeal to challenge any guilty conviction. But Senator Cruz was not alone in his criticism of the president. For example, 
In an opinion piece, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board was more scathing in its criticism of Mr. Biden, labeling the president's comments as outrageous and outrageous interference with the administration of justice. President Biden's comments, while jury was sequestered, broke with our previous president's usual practice of silence regarding ongoing criminal trials. But our interest in peeling the history behind this news, the Chauvin trial, is much bigger and broader than the timing of a president's comment. We want to better understand the history of violence against African Americans through the perspective of criminal proceedings and how prior U.S. presidents have handled those proceedings. To do that, we spoke with Thomas Balsersky, an associate professor of history at Eastern Connecticut State University, where he teaches classes on African American history as well as early American history and U.S. presidents and first ladies. In addition, Professor Balsersky is a frequent contributor to CNN, The Washington Post, and NBC. He's also the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. You can find him on Twitter at T. Balsersky. His Twitter handle and links to his book and academic homepage are also provided in the detailed caption of this podcast episode. So stay with me as Professor Balsersky and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Balzerski, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure for me to have you on this podcast. Uh, I've been following you for uh, some time now, including your, your contributions to CNN and NBC and other, other major outlets. So I know that this is a subject that you've researched and you're passionate about. But before we get into the subject, substantive discussion, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned last week. And so that I don't miss its, its, its flavor, I actually want to read it to you verbatim. You said, and I quote, I want to give listeners a sense of the long history of violence against African-Americans. Why the history? What can history teach for the current moment, the current crisis that we don't already know? I think for one thing, history can provide a sense of context, as it always does, and a depth of understanding to face down the challenges and the problems of our own time. In this particular case, as we look at the violence against African-Americans, particularly against black men in this country, and particularly at the hands of police, we will see patterns. We'll begin to establish a systemic or systematic view of this violence. And that is really what history does best. It, it gives that longer view of a topic. And in this case, it helps us to see just how long uh, this aspect 
of violence against black people has been happening in this country. In order for us to see, perhaps in order for me to see, you suggested that I watch a movie, 12 Years a Slave, a 2013 film, which by the way, is not available on Netflix, which is a shame. And it, it was nominated for nine Academy Awards. It won three, including Best Picture. But you're not a film critic. You are a historian. So what was it about that particular movie? What sets it apart from all the host of other movies about slaves and slavery? That's a great question. I'm actually teaching a course at my school, Eastern Connecticut State University, with the title Real Slavery. Real being spelled R-E-E-L. As in movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So I've actually taken something of an academic study to the question. And I've had a student also on an independent project watch several of the films and give his take on it. So I've worked with students as well. And, and my sense, and this is the sense also of other uh, historians of slavery, as well as film critics, to your point, find that 12 Years a Slave is the most realistic depiction of antebellum slavery that's been made to date. And it also captures different aspects of the enslaved experience because Solomon Northrup, the protagonist, whose his memoir, 12 Years a Slave, forms the basis of the film and what we know about his life, did in fact move around to several plantations across the South. And it's also the point that Northrup was a free man born in the North and was captured and taken and abducted illegally into slavery. So it, it underscores these, the way in which violence operates into the very system of African-American life in the United States, even for supposedly safe, free African-Americans in the North. So I think for that reason, it's particularly poignant and helps us actually to get at uh, breaking down some of the misunderstandings about why, for example, Minneapolis has become a hotbed of uh, racial protest against injustice. It's not just the South as, a, as it's been historically, it's absolutely the North as well. And so historical scholarship recently has looked at such topics, for example, as our first president, President George Washington, uh, going on a multi-year quest to try to retrieve his property, i.e. the form of an enslaved African-American woman named Ona Judge, who fled a Washington service and actually made it as far as New Hampshire. And this is President Washington, our great military hero, first president. And even he uh, faced the challenges of, of managing enslaved people at his Mount Vernon plantation. So that's just one little snippet of how North and South, how American history and Americans, America's present around the issue of race comes into focus. It could be literally any time period, any moment, any place. You'll find that this history of racial injustice and in particular of violence against African-Americans surfaces all the time. Speaking of time periods, so we go from the example of George Washington. So 1700s, yeah. uh, the movie 12 Years a Slave yep. occurs before the Civil War, right? It takes place before, the setting is before the Civil War, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right, the 1840s into the 1850s. Exactly. So the timing and the period is very important as we talk about intervention of the federal government or our presidents, which is the subject of our conversation today uh, with, with uh, you know, local brutality of law enforcement officers, be, be they called marshals or, or police officers. So several years after the period of this movie, 
we have the Civil War. President Lincoln comes, although he's later assassinated. Former slaves are free now. Men and women are free. What happens next? They want to vote. They want to do a lot of things. What happens to this just continued brutality that we're talking about? Is it over? Sadly not. Uh, in fact, the, the first year after the U.S. Civil War ended, 1865, into 1866, uh, saw, saw violent reprisal against African Americans by uh, the white former masters the, to these now new freed people in the South. And state governments who were not yet uh, being controlled as they would later by military reconstruction enacted what are known infamously as the Black Codes that established all sorts of restrictions upon the movement, the economic activity, and the rights of black people, the freed people. Now, this was particularly- Is this like 1866, 1866? Right there in 1866. It's particularly egregious, however, because the slave codes had been a part of that that story of Solomon Northrup uh, before the war. These slave codes were, were very onerous upon enslaved black people in the South because it restricted their mobility. It required them to carry passes if they left the plantation. And it did not allow them, for example, to read, have literacy. So it, it kept the subjugation, kept, to use the metaphor, the boot on the neck of the enslaved person. What so, freedom they hoped would bring was a totally new system. And, and in fact, the Black Codes were, were attempted to go right back to the slave codes. So let's just couch this for ourselves and for our listeners. It's 1866. President Lincoln has been assassinated. He had started this thing that we call reconstruction. And, I, and, and in a moment, I'll ask you to actually just define that a little bit. And Johnson is the president, the man that goes through the first impeachment. What is he doing? What is the federal government? Yeah, the term reconstruction gets into circulation as early as 1863 as a way to talk about how the nation will be put back together, literally reconstructed after the Civil War. And it takes on more legislative connotations once you start seeing Congress passing bills with the name Reconstruction on it. By this time, uh, Lincoln having been assassinated just on the cusp of what would have been perhaps his Reconstruction, now we have Andrew Johnson. Uh, we also see Congress and the president really fighting for control over Reconstruction. And ultimately, if you think about the Constitution, uh, although the president has veto power over congressional legislation, Congress has the ability to override a veto. Exactly. Yeah. So because of that, because Northern Republicans controlled uh, the House and Senate, they were easily able to override President Johnson's veto. So essentially, we see Congress taking control of Reconstruction. And that's when it begins to combat some of the worst excesses, for example, the Black Codes. And also, as we move beyond Johnson's term in the election of Ulysses S. Grant as president, to take on the terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan. So Grant was essentially the top general of the Union. He, he's the one who sat down with General Lee and they entered terms and ended the war. He becomes president and Ku Klux Klan flares up. How does he combat that? It's an interesting problem for a president who, first of all, has a military background. You might think he would rely upon uh, military reconstruction and his generals who- That's, that's what I assume. It's, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it's an interesting point. Grant uh, actually doesn't go that route. He instead uh, strengthens his own cabinet with the formation of the Department of Justice in 1870. 
And what's interesting Wait, about the that, attorney general was already a cabinet member. It, that's right. Yeah. But he the was. DOJ comes on. See, the thing about the attorney general oh. people sometimes don't know is that the attorney general, although it was part of the cabinet, was never really a full departmental supervisor. Uh, and in the sense that there was no portfolio really to the attorney general. And so, yes, it's one of these cabinet positions that was somewhat unequal to its to its fellow cabinet uh, officers. And only in 1870, with the passage of legislation that actually forms this department that combines other offices within the federal government and puts a solicitor general in place to to take court cases before courts, including the, the Supreme, Supreme court. court. Yeah. Yeah. Do we actually see a department established under an attorney general? And that's that's Ulysses S. Grant's instrument, preferred weapon of choice to combat the Ku Klux Klan. Ackerman, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. No, that's yeah. right. This was Grant's attorney general, Amos Ackerman. And just uh, for, for historical first, Benjamin Bristow was the first solicitor general. I see. Sort of recollecting my my readings, uh, my most recent one about Grant was uh, Ron Chernow's book, mm. which which came out several years ago. As we all know, Ron Chernow is the biographer who wrote Hamilton, and that's become very popular. Everyone knows that from Broadway. He has a line in there, and he talks about how Lincoln actually succeeded in crushing the Klan. Is that does that comport with your sort of uh, assessment of history here? Can can we substitute that sentence for Grant? We're talking about Grant, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. What did <laughs> I say? You <laughs> said Lincoln. But oh, no, no, no. Grant. I meant Grant. Yes, yes. So to answer the question that way, yes. Grant crushes the Ku Klux Klan. That is absolutely true. And and sadly, it's it's an achievement that he wasn't given credit for for the longest time by historians who, who tended to depict his entire administration as scandal-ridden and a failure, largely, I think, through, due to what we call the lost cause ideology, attempted to kind of uh, forget, in a way, that Grant was an activist president who combated racial injustice and the and the Klan. And Cherno's book is only the latest in a series of yes. revisionist biographies that I hope will bring that attention, that needed attention to Grant. He has another line that he says, Frederick Douglass, the African-American activist, actually placed... Uh, Grant on par with Lincoln, can have independent Grant having the sword when it comes to uh, uh, reconstruction and civil rights. Something interesting happens after Grant is about to leave the office. You and I discussed it at some point in the past. Hayes and Tilden, Hayes being a Republican and Tilden a Democrat, are 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 going through the eighteen seventy six election, and there's all this violence against African-Americans of the South and Republicans of the South. So the KKK had been crushed by President Grant, but somehow this flares up again. What, what happened? Something big really happens in, that, in those two years, 1876, 1877, that continues for decades on. I think it's important to establish that um, President Grant, even in his second term, was being overwhelmed by reactionary forces, which called themselves redeemers, variously, who... Redeemers? Were, yeah, they went by the phrase redeemers. It had a kind of Christian overlay to it. And it was a term that then led to the, 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 the related term of redemption, of trying to take back yeah. control of governments from the perspective of these white men for white men. It was the first really political movement built on white supremacy, a phrase that really enters into the dictionary only at this time. 
in this period here of democratic conservative control and return of political power. And it is one of the most violent and um, truly gut-wrenching aspects of the end of Reconstruction is this conservative backlash against typically Republicans, both white elected Republicans, and of course, black Republicans, who at this time had aligned themselves fully behind Grant and his Reconstruction policies. And truth be told, by 1876, Reconstruction is already under great pressure on the ground. And Grant, while he continues to fight it where he can, is no longer able to exert that kind of political willpower he once did. Are Redeemers, in essence, former members of the KKK, just with a different name? Is that it? There's an element of, yes, there's, so there is an element of some of the Klansmen. In fact, if you look, it's kind of sad in a way, because although the Department of Justice prosecuted more than eventually 3,000 cases in its first year and, and brought convictions uh, to almost 600 people, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the sentences meted out were for short-term crimes, and the most they could get five-year sentences. It had a lot to do with the lack of a federal code in which to prosecute these cases. So actually, in some cases, some of the redeemers were literally jailed Klansmen who got out and by 1875 and 76 were able to get back into the political uh, as well as physical uh, melee against black Southerners in places like Colfax, Louisiana, and um, places like Edgefield, South Carolina, and all across the South, really, we find these episodes. And it, it is political. It's, it's, it's often tied to the Democratic Party, but it's extra legal. These are groups and organized group of men who are in coordination with the political party and the political system, but are not organized as a clan. And that's key because by not being so overtly organized, the, the Department of Justice could not prosecute this latest spat, spate of violence against black people in the South as they once did with the Klan. We keep on talking about the Department of Justice. I take it that the local legal systems and law enforcement were sort of hands off. Heck, they may have even been part of Redeemers or the Klan. Is that is that a correct assessment? It's it's more than fair. Very often, your police chief would be a Klansman. This is true for the first Klan and the second Klan in the 20th century, or someone who's deeply sympathetic to white supremacy. Professor Balsarski, as all this violence is bubbling up, Hayes becomes president. But before him becoming president, there's a big compromise, the compromise of 1877. What impact did that have on reconstruction and civil rights going forward and just violence on African-Americans? Essentially, the compromise of 1877 brought reconstruction to an end. Oh, and while that's... some of the achievements of reconstruction continued, it meant the withdrawal of, of federal troops from the South. It meant essentially full civilian reestablishment of government. And this often meant that the Democratic Party and the white supremacist worldview could take much stronger control. It should be said that some of the gains of Reconstruction continued into the 1880s and even the 1890s. We see black elected officials in various parts of the South, black mayors, black congressmen, state legislators. It's a patchwork of, of uh, politics that, that is slowly eroded by the turn of the 20th century. But the thing that also marks this period and why it's often called the nadir of the African-American experience in, in the South and thus the nation is the establishment of Jim Crow. You know, we hear that term so much these days in the last year 
or so in the news. What is Jim Crow? Jim Crow laws, Jim Crow era, where does it come from? Yeah, Jim Crow is sometimes confused with some of the earlier violence as well as some of the earlier efforts to disenfranchise black people. Jim Crow really comes in the 1880s and is established by the 1890s through uh, both local precedent and case law that actually makes it so we have two separate societies. It's, it's sometimes epitomized in the infamous Supreme Court ruling of Plessy versus Ferguson, yeah. which actually declared something like a separate but equal doctrine for all the South. Are you talking about segregation by two separate societies? I am. Okay. And so Jim Crow is actually the physical segregation. J Jim Crow is the phrase. It comes from a African-American minstrel character, actually really a blackface minstrel character in which a white performer would wear blackface to jump. Jim Wait, Crow we've had blackface in the last several years and they've caused all sorts of controversies. So this goes all the way back to then? There's no getting around it that uh, Jim Crow is itself a kind of, it's, a, it's like a parody of a stereotype. It was uh, referring to what was a commonly accepted form of entertainment, blackface, first of uh -huh. all, which, again, is in our own context, in our own times, reprehensible. And in, in every case, we see it worth pointing out and challenging. But it's also then a name given to the Jim Crow laws and the Jim Crow era, therefore. So when people say things like Jim Crow and, and we get into, say, things like Jim Crow 2.0 or Jim Crow by another name, they could be gesturing towards a number of these phenomena. Including blackface, it, right? It, it could be. And it, yeah. it's imprecise at times. So certainly we want to be careful noting the historic moment of Jim Crow in the 19th century as an onset, but also try to give some credit to the fact that the the inequality and the segregation that took place as a result of Jim Crow can be figured in other ways. And so I think, you know, its use value as a modern analogy is questionable. At the same time, it's certainly with us here in 2021. Uh, why don't we take a short break and we'll talk about what happened next in the 20th century. So, Professor Bazersky, after the 1877 compromise, there's a long period, long gap to what happens next in the 20th century. Uh, slowly after the Great Depression, as African-American veterans come back from World War II, people start talking about uh, the, 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 the sort of injustice of segregation and everything else. But an event, uh, just a tragic, brutal event, event that occurs to uh, a young African-American sort of, sort of splashes civil rights onto people's early TV screens and newspapers. Would you like to talk about that? I, 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 I had a hard time reading the story, actually. It was very, very um, uh, gut-wrenching. Well, to talk, to invoke the name Emmett Till is in the same way we hear today's Black Lives Matters protesters and justice activists say, say his name or say her name. We need to say his name. His name is Emmett Till. He was a 14-year-old African-American boy who was not from the South. Again, he's from the North, but like so many Black people in the 20th century, was part of the Great Migration and had family members who were still in the South. So it's in that spirit that the young Emmett Till goes to Mississippi, to a place named Money, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta region. And the, the incident that led to his death, his brutal death, is in August of 1955 when this 14-year-old boy is said, and again, this is where it's somewhat disputed, to have 
either flirted or whistled at a white woman named Carolyn Bryant. And this interaction with in the 1950s, that's yeah. we're talking 1955 okay. Mississippi, 14 yep. yep. year old boy here. We're talking about someone who um, was not even from this region, but was staying with a relative. And there's some question again as to. And, and if I'm correct, the Mississippi Delta is as south as it gets. Uh, there's an argument to say that the Mississippi Delta is literally the heart and soul of the South. Okay. So Emmett goes there. Yep. Yeah, he does. And again, it's this interaction with a white woman that leads ultimately to a reprisal. And it was at the hands of two white men. It was Emma's, uh, sorry, it was this woman, Carolyn Bryant's husband uh, named Roy and his half-brother, J.W. Millam. They go to Till's great uncle's house where they abduct him. They take him away. That's brazen. Oh, my God. They go into so, the house. Uh, so, so we're talking about abduction. We're then talking about what happens to him. He is beaten. He is beaten so much. He's probably beaten to death, but his body was mutilated beyond that. And in addition, there's evidence of bullets being fired into his body. So we're talking about a 14-year-old boy who was literally made to be a corpse. He, he was, his life was snuffed out. And the sadness and the, the visceralness of Emmett Till's murder is only because, it's only because of the, what happens next. It's because for 1955 standards, there was quite a spotlight put on it. The decision of his mother, her name is Mamie Till Bradley, to insist upon an open casket service. Uh, so I, that everyone, I I, wow. You walked by that body. And you saw what had been done to Emmett Till. Was his face recognizable? No. Is she this all over the news now? In and, see, and so that's the other thing. It's So the death happens in August. The, the, the trial happens very quickly. And in all-white jury, all-white male jury, finds these two defendants not guilty. Excuse me? Not guilty. The verdict... This is a this local is, local trial in Mississippi. Yeah. Not guilty. Well, well then, then what happens? And, and it's even worse. It's even more egregious. These two men with the hubris and the pride that can only come from a white supremacist society that would protect them publicly admitted in an interview with Look Magazine, a national magazine, the next year, yeah, we did it. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. Let's... Yeah, they're acquitted, and they come and say publicly in Look Magazine, let's say, equivalent of a social media site with a huge following. We did it. Is this we because of the Eighth Amendment? You got double it. jeopardy. Double jeopardy. Um, Eisenhower is president at that yes. time. What happened? What did he do? I mean, well, it's as I mentioned, Mrs. Till, Miss Well, Amy Till Bradley, her. She is uh, extremely brave in in displaying her son's body. That's the mom. But she goes one step further. Emmett's mom actually wrote to President Eisenhower a telegraph that survives within the archives that writes, I, the mother of Emmett Lewis Till, am pleading that you personally see that justice is meted out to all persons involved in the beastly lynching of my son in Money, Mississippi, awaiting a direct reply from you. Sadly, she would receive no reply, though. Now, uh, you have Why? President Eisenhower who, in, in many ways, you say it's not his duty to get directly involved. And maybe that's still a judgment we would have uh, around this case today. But 
actually he was told about the details of the case by his own FBI. And the FBI, we now know, told President Eisenhower that Mrs. Till Bradley was a tool of communist subversion. So this is uh, J. Edgar Hoover who was the head of FBI for 40 plus years, he is telling this to President Eisenhower. Did he believe that or was there a racist element, do you think? Or does it even matter, I guess? Actually, I'm not sure if we know if Eisenhower believed it, but he, he did not act. And it actually fits within Eisenhower's MO as a president. His, his legacy on civil rights is mixed. Certainly this is a, a mark against him, but, you know, he also would only intervene, as he famously and importantly did in Little Rock two yeah. years later, mm-hmm. to integrate the public school to high school there, only when it rose to the level of, I guess, so egregious that the federal government had no choice but to act. I so, can't see it be more egregious than this, uh, Professor Bozerski. See, but this is the thing about white supremacy and the thing about power and how it works is that these two men were protected. The system protected them. And- the court trial, which is not without its drama, including an African-American man who very bravely points out who he believed to be uh, the murderers of Emmett Till correctly. Uh, this trial, nevertheless, is a, is a short affair that doesn't have the, the same kind of national media spotlight that later trials will have. But the thing about Emmett Till and the thing I want to make sure we understand is that the reaction was swift from the African-American community. In fact, the Emmett Till murder, the, the death of Emmett Till is said to be the spark or really the catalyst in a way that led to the formal start of what we still call the civil rights movement because it was in December of that same year, 1955, that the Montgomery bus boycott over in Alabama began. And if you look back on it, uh, the motivation, the outrage that so many black activists and civil rights activists felt at that time led them to action. So Emmett Till's murder and its its um, unfortunate trial outcome really changes uh, the civil rights outlook of African Americans. Is this the first time that as a, as a group they come together and is this an explosion of the civil rights movement at this time? I mean, in many ways, the influence the influence of the uh, of the Emmett Till murder cannot be overstated on the later civil rights movement and. There are various organizations that interface here, including the NAACP, which was involved as well in in uh, the response and subsequent actions and, and court cases that that led to a legal revolution uh, in response to um, the civil rights movement. But it should also be pointed out by 1955, we're also just also on the first time in in a world of Brown v. Board of Education, in a world mm-hmm. where the court is just beginning to show that it will see civil rights as a different kind of category than it previously had. So it's really the confluence of events. It's 1955. It's uh, the emergence of an, a, a group of, of activists led by a very young Martin Luther King. It's, um, it's a time where Black Americans just bravely stood up. And it's a time, um, this is, this gets us to Rosa Parks. I mean, this gets us to people who took a, a great risk in response to the injustices. This, they faced. this also gets us, correct me if I'm wrong, to the 1957 Civil Rights Act, which Strom Thurmond did the famous filibuster, the longest. It, it sort of is a continuation of that, right? Well, as I think you may have pointed out to your listeners at one point, he had a bucket with him for a reason. 
<laughs> That's right. And, and next to the Senate floor. So he would um, he would not have to leave if he needed to relieve himself. Just one more question on this. Did President Eisenhower ever make any public statements about this this case? No, he didn't. And this is another, uh, I think, mark of everlasting shame on him. And it speaks again to uh, what presidents did and did not do around civil rights. They did not comment on individual cases at, at, at this time. Uh, and that will be something that will change in time, thankfully. We will see presidents begin to acknowledge uh, specific cases later well, on. I, I think it did change when oh, we yeah. have, when we have, at least in the case of a young man, some 70 years later, 60 some years later, we had another president that very emotionally came out and talked about Trayvon, right? Yeah, young Trayvon Martin, who is not much older than an Emmett Till. And if you look at the two boys' pictures, they're almost have a With the exception of the hoodie. I mean, one had a hat, is, one had a hoodie. Yeah. It's a, a young African American boys. They're not even fully grown men yet who are the target of violence at the hands of, in the case of Emmett, of, uh, Emmett Till, white Southern, white supremacists, murderers. In the case of Trayvon Martin, as a, a bit more complex in that his murderer is Hispanic, George Zimmerman, and in fact um, is in the same community. So it's, it's, Trayvon's from the same suburban community in Florida that he's murdered in. So it's even more poignant in that it's, it's not the case of someone say from the North coming South for a time. It's, this is where he grew up. And yeah, your point about the response is also, I think dead on because um, when Barack Obama, our president heard about it, he had a very different response. It, it was heartfelt. It was, it, it sort of uh, trans transcended or, I guess it pierced the veil of the presidency and it became personal. Am I right on that? I'll just read what he said. He said, you know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Um, wow. he, went, he went on to say, I know this case has elicited strong passions and the wake of the verdict, which we all, we all know is not guilty. Obama said, I know those passions may be running even higher, but we are a nation of laws and a jury has spoken. It's uh, it, it's not only a sign of how times have changed since the time of Eisenhower, but also how the presidency uh, has changed and the, its reaction to race-based um, crimes. Um, we'll be back after a short break where we'll talk about the 1990s, during which we got to see police brutality and criminal trials on our TV screen. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. Professor Balzerski, during the break, we talked about how the whole nation last week breathed a sigh of relief. There was not only because of the justness 
of the verdict, but also that there was no violent protest, no riots, no looting. But when we look back in the 90s, just the opening years, really, it wasn't always like this, right? We actually have a very famous, uh, go ahead, please, case that uh, defies everything that happened last week. Oh, so many things. And uh, I, I first reflect on how fresh it all feels. The the Derek Chauvin trial uh, for the death of George Floyd is, um, and the response to it has been affirming and yet so saddening. So I want to acknowledge that for all your listeners who, who lived through that trial and watched the evidence and relived the trauma. Um, in, in a way, when we talk about even the recent past, like the 1990s, for some of us, it feels very recent. It feels like something that was just yesterday. But as I teach students here at Eastern Connecticut State University, many of them are born after the year 2000. Um, it's ancient history. <laughs> so, I, I, <laughs> so I definitely have to teach this stuff. Uh, they don't know it anymore. And even when you know presidents today refer back to events that seem like yesterday, it's important to put them into a context. So I think the thing you're talking about um, was a moment of just massive um, just protest and reaction to the brutal and unjustified beating of Rodney King in Los Angeles. Which was videotaped, by the way. uh, I mean, we didn't have cell phones. Somebody videotaped the whole thing. He did. And that's what makes the Rodney King trial, like the George Floyd murder in broad full daylight, so remarkable is that the video footage is there. and, And that gets us into, you know, what it means to be able to see the murder of another person or the beating of another person in the case of Rodney King. Rodney King is interesting again because he lives remarkably, which is it's it's actually the only part about it that's worth sort of celebrating is that Rodney King isn't killed by police brutality. He goes on and actually plays a part in response to yeah. the riots that follow in in the verdict that is given of not guilty to against the officers who engaged in the beating of Rodney King. If and, I may, Professor yeah. Balzerski, I just wanted to comment on the video. For those who have not seen it, especially our younger listeners, you, you really got to watch the video. It's very similar to the George Floyd video in that it goes on and on and on with Rodney King on the pavement. And you're like, at any moment, it's going to stop. But it doesn't stop. It's it's surreal. It's almost like a movie. Yeah, it's simply to say that the reaction of, of, the, of the not guilty verdict led to uh, massive riots, looting, but also really uh, protests and unrest. And it it actually was devastating to the to parts of the city of Los Angeles and brought a uh, kind of racial conflict of another kind, including among African Americans and the Korean American communities there. I remember so it, that it, it was heart wrenching, actually. And but what's interesting comparing it, we've just heard about what President Obama said. President George H. W. Bush, president at the time, said, and listen to the difference. He said. The court system has worked. What's needed now is calm, respect for the law. Let the appeals process take place. A, a, a different reaction, one without maybe the empathy we might have hoped and uh, trying to understand the pain Americans, particularly black Americans, were feeling. And, and, and that's because, again, you know, we talked about some of the earlier trials. It's, it's a crime of a different kind. It's one individual on another. Here we're talking about our government. I mean, the police force is taxpayer-funded agencies. And we're talking about people we give our trust and our faith to, who violate that trust, who break the faith. 
And when they beat African-American citizens, when they beat any American citizen, we can't be okay with it. And I think that's that's maybe what, what was so jarring about the reaction from public officials in 1992 was a sense in which um, you could sort of wash your hands clean of it. I recall um, that the Marines, the California National Guard, and I think even the Army were called in. Do you think President George H.W. Bush's reaction was because of the riot and looting, or is there more to share here? Yeah, it gets down to, actually, I think President Bush was attempting to, as he says, calm people. And he hoped that he could use the power of the presidency to to kind of urge that. And uh, I think one of the things we, we see in our really our recent American history is that um, we don't necessarily have the same faith and credit in our elected officials as maybe we might have in an earlier period. So I, I actually think Eisenhower had a kind of a greater sway and control over events in a way that, that someone like Bush just didn't enjoy in terms of his authority, moral authority, really, as a leader. And I think it's it, it's a bit of tone deafness on top of it that makes, uh, quite frankly, Bush seem out of touch during an important campaign year, by the way. That was 1992 when Bill Clinton got a lot of mileage uh, out of out of this event and I think uh, solidified a lead that he never lost in the election of 1992. Which led to events that tested his ability to deal with criminal trials involving African-Americans. But in this case, unlike what you were sharing earlier, you were saying this was the hand of our government, people that are supposed to take care of us. It, the, the story's a little bit different. Uh, and I'd love for you to share that with us. Yeah. Well, I think the O.J. Simpson trial, again, for those of us who were alive and lived through it, is a moment we remember, particularly when the verdict was read. And Again, it, it fits into a different category. It's not a, an example of police violence against African-Americans. It's instead the story of a murder of actually uh, white people, of, of O.J. Simpson's um, wife. And um, it seems I think it was to a me, boyfriend as well, yeah. a white boy. So uh, Ron Goldman, Nicole um, Simpson and Ron Goldman, right? Yeah. How, so how does this fit the narrative? We're talking about the oppressive yeah. hand of government or or um, this disengaged law enforcement uh, and brutality against African-Americans. This is an African-American man who we think he did it. Uh, so yeah. how does well, this it, fit the story? It, it's it's sometimes, you know, sometimes it's the exception that proves the rule. I think the OJ Simpson, Simpson case actually underscored the divisions in American society that had been uh, left by the result of the Rodney King verdict and as a result of police violence against African-Americans. So that when it came time for a black criminal defendant, and let's call him what he was, a murderer, who arranged for the murder for hire of these two individuals, um, it was almost as if the black community at the time, and you can see this in photographs and reactions and video footage, um, Drew sort of implicitly took the side of OJ and came down uh, on OJ and sort of supported OJ um, no matter what. Whereas for others listening, as well as now in retrospect, we basically know he did do it, yes. Um, the, the reaction was quite different. And Bill Clinton picked up on that. that. And that gets to the point is that the divisions between black and white were very stark in this case. He said, I respect the jury verdict, Clinton said. And in terms of the white, white Americans see the world differently. 
generally based on their race, that troubles me. So even though, again, it's not a case of um, a police violence or brutality against African-Americans, it's also how white people and white Americans are seeing the world and using the O.J. Simpson case as a prism to understand race itself. Could you read that sentence one more time, please? Because I think it's a loaded sentence. It has a lot there. That's Bill Clinton for you. I respect the jury verdict. And in terms of the white Americans see the world differently, generally, based on their race, that troubles me. So what he's saying, if I'm correct, is that there is a reason why you don't understand why African-Americans are so happy about this verdict. You don't That's see it. it from their eyes. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's actually exactly. quite profound, isn't it? I think so. Clinton was gleaning an essential insight yeah. over why black and white Americans were so divided about O.J. Simpson. And and again, if this were to be a case in 2021, I really wonder uh, if you would see in those same those same divisions. Of course, it's it's such a fascinating one because he was such a high profile celebrity and uh, again, someone who was in the national spotlight at a time and place in America where uh, the divisions were still very raw. Professor Balzerski, we, we usually do a perspective uh, where we bring yeah. history to bear on news and we do it briefly. Would you like to stay with me as, as we get into the perspective here? Happy to do it. Wonderful. We'll be back in a moment. Professor Balsersky, somewhat unprecedented, President Biden commented on Mr. Chauvin's trial while the trial was going on. But he belabored the point on national TV that I'm only saying this because the jury is sequestered. How does that fit in, in everything that we've talked about? We've talked about four presidents so far, Grant, Eisenhower, uh, Clinton, Obama, I guess five presidents, and uh, George H.W. Bush. How does that fit with all of that? Well, President Biden, our oldest president, is showing a, a steady hand at the ship of state right now. and he's He, like President Bush, had the impulse to want to bring calm. He also, I think, correctly saw that the verdict would turn out, for the first time, guilty. Uh, against the criminal defendant, Derek Chauvin, in this case. And perhaps because of that, he correctly said that he hoped the jury would reach the right verdict. He said the right verdict in the Chauvin case. And I think it, it actually helps us to see where the presidency is going, perhaps. And I would like to also read a little bit from the president's statement, which followed uh, here just uh, several days ago. He called it a murder in the full light of day. He said it ripped the blinders off of the whole world to see the systemic racism that, pres that Vice President Harris had just referred to in her remarks. The systemic racism that is a stain on our nation's soul. The knee, of the, uh, the knee on the neck of justice for black Americans, a reference, of course, to how George Floyd was murdered. The profound fear and trauma, the pain, the exhaustion that black and brown Americans experience every single day. Let's not forget, Joe Biden is the first president to use the phrase white supremacy in an inaugural address of any American president. So he has a commitment, having, of course, been vice president to the first black president. He has a commitment 
his whole life, quite frankly, from his first days as a senator from a segregated state, Delaware, to see racial justice served in this country. Here's my takeaway. On the one hand, there's no question what's in President Biden's mind when he says the right verdict. He's referring to really a legal opinion, the overwhelming evidence, the video of Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And Biden knew that the state of Minnesota and cities across the country would witness really violence of an unprecedented nature from angry protesters if Chauvin were not convicted. But on the other hand, the president, like all presidents before him, needs to respect the judicial system and rather than fire up protesters, calm them down. And I think incredibly, Joe Biden has managed once again to do just that. He did both, right? Do you yeah. think we're going to enter an era in which uh, U.S. presidents are going to be more uh, hands-on, more uh, proactive in dealing with local matters when it comes to race. Right now, President Biden has has sent his uh, Attorney General, Mr. Garland, to to uh, Kentucky, Louisville, to deal, to assess. Uh, so you think this is a change again, sort of an inflection in history? You know, it's interesting. We began with this investigation of the Department of Justice and how important it was under the Grant administration yeah. for a strong attorney general with the powers to prosecute cases of civil rights violations against African-Americans in the South. And where do we end? We end with an attorney general in 2021 doing exactly that. Louisville, Kentucky, they are the Department of Justice's opening an investigation into what is a possible pattern of of rights violations of practices that that in that discriminate against the black citizens of Louisville in the south and with the with the goal of reform so there is still a justice element it's it's meant to improve matters i saw the comments from the police chief in Louisville a woman who i thought gave the most outstanding response you could to the knowledge that the department of justice was investigating your city that this is an opportunity for improvement yeah i saw i saw her um press uh, press conference as well with our colleagues and she was very articulate professor balserski thank you so much for educating me and our listeners i it was a pleasure speaking with you i appreciate your time you're always welcome to our podcast anytime and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At ThePeel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here, at the peel.news, we peel the news for the history behind it. 
and our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with appeal.news.